Welcome to the third season of Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. In this episode, Looking Back and Looking Beyond, we are joined by BHDP's market leaders, Andrew McQuilkin of our retail market, Paul Orban from Higher Education, Drew Susco from Workplace, and Michael Verdeer of Integrated Industrial Design. Comparing the similarities and differences the pandemic has had on each market, they offer their perspectives on what the lasting effects may be for architecture and design. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. And I'm going to start with Paul. So Paul, let everyone know who you are and what you do, sir. Paul Orban. I'm the market leader for higher education at BHDP. Thank you, Paul. I think next, let's go to Michael. Hi, Brian. I am the market leader for what we call the integrated industrial design market that uh, focuses on customers that have manufacturing, warehousing, distribution centers. So, Michael Verdeer, thank you very much. Uh, Andrew. Thank you, Brian. I'm Andrew McQuilkin. I am the market leader for our retail practice. Great. And Drew. Not to be confused with Andrew, I'm Drew Susco. I'm the market leader for our workplace practice. Thank you all for being here. We're here to talk about 2020, but then we want to spend more time looking forward if we could. But 2020 was an experience that impacted literally everything. So all of the markets were touched in some capacity. And what I want to do is see, you know, what was uncovered about your particular market? What kind of insights did you have to share? And Paul, if you wanted to go first, tell us how higher education was impacted by 2020. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Higher education was most significantly impacted at first just with having to send their students home. You know, when the pandemic hit and having to shut down campus due to the risk of spread, that obviously put a, a huge strain on higher ed in terms of not having students on campus, not having full residence halls, dining halls, and athletics and events which really started several issues into play. Number one, students from our survey data love to be on campus. Having to move to remote learning is an issue. Number two, it it really hit the revenue streams for our clients pretty hard, and that was a major impact for 2020. That's pretty significant, Paul. And Michael, what about IID? The biggest thing that impacted us was the supply chain, the resiliency of those supply chains. So you can imagine somebody that's producing consumer products or assembled products, there's components or sub-assemblies that they're getting from tier two, tier three suppliers. As those suppliers had challenges with keeping staff in place, they couldn't get those components to the main assembler. Just like a piece of equipment, you may have everything completed on it, but you're waiting for a servo and you can't ship it without that one component. Owners are really looking at, in the future, their supply chains and how to make those more robust. And just so I'm clear, when you say tier two and tier three suppliers, like tier one is the preferred supplier. And then it's like, okay, we're going to plan B and plan C, or are the tiers different? Think about like a major automotive manufacturer. They source steering wheels from somebody, tires from somebody else, radios from somebody. So where they're getting those components or the materials are the tier two, tier three suppliers. Thanks for that. Andrew, what about retail? What did 2020 do for you? (laughs) Well, thanks for asking, Brian. Uh, So what it did within, obviously, the retail industry, the biggest impact of all was this designation of essential and non-essential retail. The shutting down of non-essential retail impacted 
the entire industry, from restaurants to specialty stores to department stores and all the like. If you were essential, you got to stay open. So your biggest challenge initially was mitigation. How do you make people feel safer and be safer within those spaces? So most of the retailers that were, if not all of them, that were essential spent weeks scrambling to try to be a mitigated place. And so to the point of Michael in tier one and tier two and tier three, you know, supplying plexiglass, those manufacturers quickly ran out. There was a big weight to be able to try to help make their guests and their employees feel safer with these plexiglass. So that was the biggest challenge. Yeah. So it sounds like supply was a big issue as well, but it's about people safety. So Drew, talk about workplace. How would 2020 impact the workplace team? Essential is an interesting word, right? So in workplace, we tend to be talking about knowledge workers as opposed to integrated industrial design, people who make things, right? Workplaces, people who process ideas typically. So they're working in more traditional office space environments. What was interesting is on the doorstep of 2020, a lot of our clients were already grappling with essentially the ramifications of digital transformation, right-sizing some offices, sending some people home, trying to grapple with flexible work arrangements. And if anything, 2020, while it halted our ability to address those issues with our clients directly, it really magnified those issues. So as people were thrust into work from home on a pretty massive scale, you know, Brian, you and I have been having this conversation over the course of the year, it became an imperfect experiment. But most of our clients adjusted seemingly overnight to new ways of working. And as we've proceeded throughout the year, the sentiment early on was that this was temporary. (laughs) The sentiment through the middle of the year was we're getting back to normal at some point soon. And then there was this disillusionment phase. And now, as we've been working from home or working remote or working in some hybrid capacity for going on 10 months, I think the reality is that this is a permanent component of the way we will work moving forward. So as we look towards 2021, this remote work environment that we've all been thrust into is going to be a component of a workplace ecosystem to some degree. And that, for us, you know, the workplace market presents a pretty significant opportunity to help our clients reimagine what it means to go to work invent the next new thing. What are some changes that have happened because of 2020 that you might see sustaining in each of your markets? Paul, what do you think for higher ed? That's a great question, Brian. I think the thing that I see sticking, if you will, moving forward in higher ed is definitely some form of hybrid learning. When students were forced to go fully remote, our clients were immediately thrust into this challenge of how do we deliver content online? many of which were not already doing that in large capacities. That being said, we know many of the students want to be back in the classroom, but there will be some things that continue to be offered online. So, you know, we see a likelihood of a hybrid model depending on the content and the coursework in that individual student's needs. Almost this way to design your own education, right? I want to take this course online versus I want to be here in person for another type of a subject or course in the future. Yeah, like a choose your own adventure, but for higher ed, you know, I'm going to do the labs in person, but I'm going to do the coursework at home. I wish I had that when I was in school because I had three kids at the time, so that would have been a lot nicer. Michael, what about IID? For the industrial market, I think what's going to really stick, and, and we already see some of the owners planning this, is diversifying away from sole sourcing a number of their materials or components like I talked about particularly, you know, those those tier two, tier three suppliers. I mean, we already had seen a lot of reshoring back to the United States behind increased transportation and warehouse costs, 
being able to manage quality of components, increased labor rates, kind of historically developing regions. And so the advantages of producing offshore start to diminish. And so we already saw things coming back to the United States. I think as owners make those plans, they're going to say, you know, we're not going to reshore in one location. We're going to diversify that, you know, to two or three suppliers to ensure that business continuity going forward. Providing more options for more materials from different sources. If anything happens again, you can zigzag and grab what you need, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think you'll probably see a lot of owners going out and qualifying new suppliers for the materials or components, but that also naturally brings in more competition too. So I think in the long run, owners might see some benefits in terms of competitive pricing as well. I wonder what the long-term benefit to creating innovation in a market is when there are more choices and more competition as opposed to like a single source, you get what you get. You may have some ability to control the quality, but it doesn't advance the state of the art as much, or am I over overthinking it? No, I think you're right. Anytime you got competition, it forces you to continue to innovate and be better than your competition. That's interesting. So, Andrew, let's talk about retail a little bit. You know, what what kind of changes have happened to retail that might stick? Well, Brian, I kind of want to address a, a little bit what Michael talked about. Well, please do. Um, yeah. We found that retailers, even if they were non-essential, when they started back up, those that were more vertically integrated controlled their destiny more. So, you know, we've got a couple of retail clients who manufacture their own product and they do it not overseas. So they were able to control how they were going to restock their stores once business started picking up again. But the overall, to your question about what's going to be more permanent, is we talk about a crisis. If there's a trend going down and you hit a big crisis, that trend goes down faster. If there's a trend going up, it goes up even faster. And what we're seeing is we did a customer survey of 1,000 shoppers just before COVID hit. And then we did another shopper survey in June, and we repeated some of the questions, knowing that obviously there's been a significant change. And then we asked those customers in June about their preferences of where they like to shop, and whether it's online, in-store, or a combination. And it was interesting. We expected to see something that was high go low and then go back up again as they predicted what they might be doing after COVID's gone. But there was one factor that was low that turned around and went middle, and they believed that after it would be higher. So we saw a 200% increase in what shoppers called no preference, that they didn't have a preference. It started in the 14%, and by the time it got to the end, it was in the 30% of what they think it's going to happen later. So from that, we kind of analyzed that a little deeper and realized that when the customer can't be predicted on how they're going to shop these channels, the control is no longer with the retailer. It's with the shopper. And it's what their disposition or the occasion or how would they feel that day is depending on how they're going to shop the different vehicles within a retailer. So we actually call that omni-choice, which kind of fits into some of the things that even Paul was saying, that you now empowered the user, the shopper, to be able to make their own decision. So in a way, that forces retailers to innovate. Because if you had an omni-channel strategy before where you could have online, in-store, pickup, whether you were essential or came back later as non-essential, you actually fared really well because you had different ways in which the customer had shot. But because they've tried all these things during the pandemic they may have not done before, they now look at this as one experience regardless of the channel, and they'll base it on occasion. So I think that's the biggest thing is retailers now have to realize that the chopper's in charge. And they've got to provide those omni-choice solutions, even in-store and at bricks and mortar. So a front of a store has got to have multiple ways in which you can shop. 
And I think that's going to change the real estate strategies. And you've got to be able to lure shoppers in more to be able to have them take advantage of which choice they prefer. So I needed to pick up a printer for my house and I only had one day to do it and I didn't order it ahead of time. And so I went online, I found the printer that I wanted, but it wasn't available at my store, but I found one where I could pick it up the same day that was close enough to drive to. So it was no big deal. So I had a lot of freedom of, I don't want to go in a store. I need it right now. And I used the internet to make that happen. And all I had to do was call when I got there and they brought it out to my car. I was in complete control of the whole interface. That took a lot of the anxiety out of it. I was at a conference where we had somebody from the Harvard Business School, a guy named David Campbell speak. And he talked about, you know, retail is going to go more to a distribution model, even in a bricks and mortar location. And we got to see what's now called dark stores get created. We have a local Kroger that closed one of their stores. And all it was was for pickup and delivery. He said his predictions were no more than two years out. Well, he was only six months out. (laughs) It just took a pandemic to maybe accelerate. That was the ramping up of a change, right? Yes. You know, what Andrew was just talking about, I was thinking, what is going to happen in retail in terms of the brick and mortar projects? Because same thing, I go to the the Domino's Pizza. They won't even let me go in. I have to go through the drive-thru. So think about that in like a Dick's Sporting Goods or an REI Maybe when we design their retail stores, the brick and mortar stores going forward, it'll just be more of a warehouse in the back and you pull up and they bring it out to you. You know, in contrast to that, I don't think higher ed's going to force you to the drive through anytime soon. Based on the topic of Andrew's shopper research throughout the pandemic, we did a number of student roundtables where we were engaging groups of students nationwide on how they were dealing with the pandemic and and learning from home. And the resounding fact that we heard was they want to be on campus because they are paying for the experience, that student experience of being on campus to socialize, collaborate, and learn with their peers. And, And that was their biggest pain. Yeah, that would be impactful. And Drew, I wanted to make sure we didn't leave workplace out of this. What changes have happened because of the pandemic that might stick going forward? Well, it's interesting hearing Paul reflect on the student experience, right? They are paying for that experience. Similarly, in workplace, our employees are getting paid to come to work. Um, But employers are still paying for that space as well. The point I think I've heard from everyone is optionality and choice. Choice from where you buy things or or how you go about buying things to choice in terms of your curriculum and how you structure your day. You know, Michael's comments around the supply chain, optionality there, mitigating risk, onshoring, et cetera. What's interesting from a workplace standpoint is there's been a trend towards more choice in the physical environment, but the expectation has historically been that you come to work and then the choice is presented to you once you show up. And now we have this new opportunity where potentially there's the choice to not come at all. And a lot of our clients are grappling with more dynamic demand for space. That's a paradigm shift and potentially a game changer for workplace design. I'm speaking at a a pretty massive scale because before the game was how many people and with what frequency would they show up to the office, you know, and that sets more or less the amount of space that you would take on. But now on a regular basis, as people potentially elect to structure their own days based on what they need to do, there will potentially be more variability in terms of the amount of space that employers need to provide for the the work getting done. That will stick and has pretty massive consequences for the way that not only we structure our days, but quite frankly, the manner in which we interact with each other. The other thing I think is pretty interesting, the days of going to the office and doing heads down work in an open office environment are over. 
if you need to operate in that way and you have an environment at home to do so, why would you choose to come into the office except for maybe bumping into people and feeling a sense of camaraderie and belonging? But the core tension in workplace design for the last 15, 20 years, right, has been the balance between concentrative work and collaborative work and striking that right balance. Similarly, I think it would be pretty bizarre to come into the office and sit at a desk and conduct remote calls all day long next to a neighbor who's doing the same thing. Hybrid is going to be the word of the year from Webster for 2021, at least if you were to look in the workplace part of the dictionary. As we hybridize work, it's going to present all sorts of new challenges with respect to the way we interact with folks, both virtually and remotely. You know, Drew, I saw one of the reports that came out of a project that you were working on where it was a senior leadership team. You were talking about going to this kind of a hybrid approach on their workplace and severely reducing the footprint. But the leader made the comment, if you don't give me a place to hide, I'll never come in. When you talk about why would you come in to do your focus work, maybe home isn't the most conducive environment to focus. So is there more deliberate thought around how the workplace gets designed to allow for focus? Yeah, there certainly is. And we were seeing some of it before the pandemic. There was the emergence of all these little phone booths that you could buy off the shelf and you know pop into your office environment, you know, aftermarket essentially workplace design, which is kind of interesting. So products for workplace. But I think there's going to be a lot more intentionality with respect to the way people structure their day. What will be interesting to see is if that is intentionality on behalf of the user, meaning I have to think through how I'm going to spend my day, or if there will be a technology component to this. And we're already starting to see a lot of innovation from the tech sector in terms of analyzing the way we spend our time and potentially even making recommendations for where we might and with whom we might work. And there's a lot of buzz and energy in that part of the workplace market too. Thinking through how can technology help us make better use of our, the only resources we all have, which is time. Yeah, and create some user autonomy in that space, too. So you can check your app to see if the workplace is safe or how crowded it is. So it adds back some psychological security. There's a lot of potential that exists within the data that's maybe not being utilized yet. And Brian, just one other thing I know what Paul was talking about earlier about, you know, students going back to college or universities and that being the best learning environment. Just from a parent's perspective, I mean, my son's a senior in high school now, and he's applied to a number of colleges. And as a parent, I want him at those universities. I want him to have that experience. He wants to study engineering. When we've been able to visit schools, I'm looking at the labs. I'm asking questions about the in-person classes. Are the labs open? And there's all of that that's part of the learning experience. You know, Michael, that's really important because when we look at the trends over the last 10 years plus in higher ed, we were designing to try to get people to work together, collaborate together, learn. We were really trying to reinforce project-based or hands-on learning. Even dining models were all about driving capacity through dining halls or food venues. All the things that in the past nine months have been things that you either couldn't do or didn't want to do, right? So that return to the in-person learning, especially in certain degree programs where that making, building, doing things with teams and hands-on learning is very critical to the education. Yeah, it's, I agree. It's certainly part of our selection criteria. I think there's a missing factor, again, with all this individual collaboration happening through technology. There's a serendipity of innovation that happens when you're all together working on something hands-on and you build off that synergy to get to these bigger, better ideas. And, you know, we're using technology out there like Miro boards and a few other things. You can collaborate on it, but 
that serendipity is gone, the innovation's gone. Even this conversation we're happening is one person and then the next person. And a lot of times there's a buzz in a room that happens. And so I think there's an innovation factor that we have to still try to work through if this is going to be a little bit more permanent as a method for communicating and collaborating. To build on that notion, Andrew, we've talked a lot in our circles around what's missing. And what's missing is the ability to interact with people in a, in a more natural manner, right? Humans have evolved to interact with each other in, in physical environments, right? We know how to read each other. I mean, I know that if Paul is clearing his throat, he's getting ready to speak. But if Paul's on mute, I have no idea that he's clearing his throat. So therefore, I'm just going to roll over and continue to talk. And so some of those social cues that we've learned to understand about each other are really lost in this environment, and I think to, to great detriment. It's funny that you say that because I'm learning new social cues, like in this environment where we all have to take turns to talk, if I see somebody unmuting, that's my cue that they want to say something. And so I'm actually watching that little icon at the bottom of the screen to see who's next. But yeah, to Andrew's point before, there's a piece of creativity that I personally feel like is tactile and vestibular. So there's something about being able to move around while you're thinking in whatever capacity you move around. And this team's call right now, it's very sedentary. We're all sitting, looking straight at the screen. There's something about that creative process about being able to kind of pace back and forth and to touch things. And until the virtual environment catches up to that and allows for that kind of motion, it might be a little more compressed. I don't think it's impossible, but I was curious though, Paul, I wanted to talk about higher education a little bit as well. Did you see any universities, were some more prepared than others to switch into this like remote or even a hybrid environment? What were some maybe successes or watchouts that might help others? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. The first thing I would say is the universities that I saw maybe take a more cautious approach financially and almost assume the worst in terms of what the impacts on funding would be seem to have come back more positive when enrollment was stronger than they thought it would be in the fall. And they said, we planned for the worst and it came in better, so that's a win. I think the people that quickly pivoted to focus on, let's get students home safely, let's focus our energy on getting campus ready for fall, and had a strong plan of bringing students back, were the ones that have been most successful through the the fall and into the winter in terms of less issues with COVID on campus. Sure. And I do know that there was one, and I don't know if it's verboten to say client names, but I know like Galen is a nursing school and part of their academia was already online. Like they had a component that was virtual learning. And so for them to make that switch, they already had the infrastructure and the knowledge on how to do it. And they did it very quickly. Other larger universities, it, this is my perspective. So you, this is where you tell me if I'm wrong. They seem to be in like a wait and see pattern. And then there were a lot of decisions made very quickly that may not have been as good as possible for the student experience. I think it's a fair statement to say those that already had strong online learning programs going into this were able to pivot much quicker and be more successful in, in the short term of accommodating students' needs and get, keeping people moving. We did see a lot of clients have to quickly react and invest in technology, for instance, to, to outfit classrooms for remote learning because they didn't have that before mid-March of, of 2020. I wondered too, in IID, in manufacturing, were there places that were better suited for it? Because a lot of manufacturing, I imagine, is in person. It's hands-on. What can you share there, Michael? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly, Brian. Those manufacturers that had already invested in automation or robotics and weren't as heavily relying upon the manual assembly of products or materials, I think, fared much better. And I know that owners are starting to look at even more automation. Andrew mentioned earlier about retailers being vertically integrated. I think we also saw those that had near or on-site suppliers, particularly in consumer products. You know, think about the shampoos or the hand sanitizers where they have to blow bottles. And then if you were transporting bottles from a supplier across the state and they had disruptions, you know, that would disrupt your ability to produce. So some of the owners that have on-site sub-suppliers, you know, like bottle blowing, I think fared much better as well. That sounds similar to to what Andrew talked about in retail, about having that vertical supply chain. So the folks that did well were the ones that they had most of the things contained in a small sphere. Thank you, Michael. Andrew, what about retail? Were there successes within the market? So here's a little story. One of our clients is a discounter. And the end of last year, the president made a decision to get out of online. That president is no longer at the company. (laughs) I would imagine so. They struggled to get online to work. They struggled to get their shoppers to buy online. We can understand why they made that decision. But in the end, there was no vehicle when they were considered non-essential for their customer to shop their brand. Now they're scrambling to go back and figure out a way to add it on. They're going to do a third-party resource and then third-party distribution. So when we look at the ones that were really successful, obviously, if you were essential and had all these capabilities of drive-up, pick-up, curbside, online, deliver to home, you did really well. And a lot of grocers were already down that path. And if you weren't, say, they're a company like Panera, you saw Panera turn around and said, well, to be able to be called essential, like a QS, a lot of QSR restaurants were essential, they put in a, a case of grocery. They were selling their ingredients as a grocer. But I like the fact that there were some quick paradigm shifts that they made in terms of how they could reach their customer and fulfill their needs. Maybe that'll end up being a permanent. They'll always be a little grocery store as part of Panera. That's interesting. Drew, what about workplace? Where were some successes or important lessons learned? Yeah, I think it echoes what we heard from Paul. So those businesses that had both the infrastructure and the work processes to enable digital work, they had already made the transition. You know, people were working remotely already in large part. And so going to what is called virtual first was very easy for them. Those organizations that had the infrastructure but didn't have the work processes, they struggled a little bit, right? There were some bumps in the road figuring out how all this stuff works. And then, you know, there are some organizations, right, that had resisted investing in bandwidth, et cetera, or hardware to enable people to work remotely. And, you know, they really, really struggled through the the period of transition. But I think what's remarkable, and Paul mentioned it too in, in higher education, is how quickly people adapted. It's remarkable to hear Andrew mention, you know, retailers shifting overnight. I mean, retail moves faster than any of our markets. Andrew mentioned with his Panera story, and, you know, there might be some latent effects of the decisions that Panera has made. I will be very curious to see in the workplace environment, what are those workarounds that were once workarounds that now become just the way things work? I do have a question for Andrew. So in workplace, we're having a lot of conversations with folks about what's missing. And the common story is the social dimension of work is missing through this period of time as we are forced to work remotely. So I'm curious in the retail environment, what's missing from the shopper experience as people are purchasing everything online and and just picking up curbside? 
in this survey that we did, we actually did different demographics, and obviously the old demographic preferred to shop in store more. And then they, in the middle of the pandemic, obviously they had a big shift of what they were forced to do. But there was this younger generation we surveyed of 14 to 18-year-olds, and we asked them, where do you feel most comfortable before, now, and in the future for where you want to shop? And it was really interesting. They were at a certain level of bricks and mortar. They went down. But because we broke up the different channels of the types of retail, you know, malls, city flagships, Main Street stores, that generation of 18 and 14-year-olds, they saw themselves going back and shopping the mall more than pre-COVID. And it goes into the idea that what we're looking at is there was a lot of depression and anxiety in that in that age group to begin with. There's not a lot of physical an emotional connection when their whole lives were digital natives. And so psychologically, what I think is happening is I think they're craving connection. They're craving being with people and being part of the brand experience. They already wanted the authenticity of saying they, they went to Topshop and they bought that product in the store, not online. I bought it in the store and I met the person who represents the brand. Because I think ultimately the individual who's selling to you like a barista at Starbucks, is the epitome of the brand. That's the person who best represents the ideas that you're buying into and associating with. So I think this younger generation is pointing out that that connection is so important. Yeah, yeah the 14 to 18-year-olds is an interesting demographic, and that's the period of time in your life when you sort of tiptoe out into the world. The mall was the place where that happened from when I personally was, say, 12 to, to 15, you know, before I could drive. It was this place to get dropped off and, you know, have some safe experiences. I wonder if part of the net effect of all of this, speaking more broadly, will be this period of pent-up demand, whereby I don't want to make light of the pandemic. Obviously, it's a tragedy in every sense of the word. But I wonder if there's going to be a, some sort of post-war period where let's assume that we can all safely recover and the vaccine works. I wonder what we're going to collectively experience for a period of, say, six to 12 months after this all passes, theoretically. Or if it's not like a war where it just ends, right? If it just slowly ramps back up and it progresses in a different manner. But it'd be fascinating to see. Michael, I see that you've unmuted. You wanted to add to that? As Andrew and Drew were talking, I was thinking a little bit about what, and this plays into higher ed as well, but, you know, Drew, Onboarding new employees that are right out of university and training them, mentoring, coaching, it's very challenging right now. Trying to do that over a Teams meeting, some of that, even in our office, a design firm, you've got to have that one-on-one, face-to-face interaction to teach people how to do detailing or code studies, programming, and then just a lot of the unique things we do at BHTP around visioning and design drivers. I mean, you just can't teach that through a Teams call. And I know that there's other industries too. You've got to be together. It's more hands-on. I think that's an element of when will people come back? And you talk about when the vaccine works and things, so this pent-up demand. I think there's going to be a lot of young people that are just, just have a huge appetite to come back and learn. And I'm worried if that doesn't happen, are we going to have a period that's void of talent in the future? that know these skills and these trades like architects and engineers do today, that had the benefit of a mentor and that one-on-one training and coaching. Had someone asked me what I missed most about having people in the office and in our environment, being an open office. And the first thing I said was those impromptu conversations were the things that I overheard because I was sitting at my desk working that I normally wouldn't hear someone asking a question or saying, hey, I'm stuck or this happened. And I could just overhear it by chance and say, hey, 
we've done that before. Don't do it that way. Here's some coaching. Call this person. You almost think about it as the education of book smarts and street smarts. And what is the impact on the real life experiences or the street smarts knowledge you're getting from those around you when, when you can't have those type of discussions? Yeah, the serendipity is gone. It, everything has to be more deliberate. So if you're going to exchange those things, you have to make that connection and you have to plan it. To your point, Paul, I had a great mentor when I was really young, just starting out at a design and architectural firm. And I was putting my headphones on, you know, those Sony Walkmans. And I was getting my work done, having the headphones on. And my boss, Martin, came over and he basically said, take those off. I don't want you listening to your music. I want you listening to the office. It was the best thing I ever did in my early career because I could hear other people on the phone and how they talked to clients, how they resolved issues. I could find myself hearing things that I was interested in. So I'd get up and walk around and, and see if I could be a part of what they were doing. That's all gone. How do you make up for that? I guess ultimately it's post-pandemic or the technology has to get to a level where that, that randomness of synergy can happen, where you can pay attention to other people because right now you just pay attention to your, your music in your house. I'm curious, Paul, at this point, kind of sitting where you are in in higher ed, what's funny is these conversations when we talk across market, shopping and workplace are are common experience for everyone, right? Uh, But higher ed, right, we all have a very specific period in our time where we're in a higher ed environment. What questions are you beginning to ask of your clients? And what are some of the questions you're posing to them as we hopefully begin to steer out of this period of time? That's a great question, Drew. So the first thing I'd say is this pandemic really just accelerated some change that was coming already in higher ed, much like a lot of industries, right? So they were already struggling from enrollment challenges, funding challenges, the question on perceived value in higher ed of of a degree, and ultimately how to differentiate themselves. No different than employers are having to differentiate themselves to attract talent or retailers are having to differentiate themselves to gain customers, right? And, and that constant pressure to be fresh, be new. So as we're talking to our clients, a lot of the questions are, how has this evolved your strategy? And what are you focused on uh, knowing that things are just going to get that much more competitive in the future? It was already competitive. Now it's even more. So this pressure to differentiate, sell value, attract and retain those students is meaning a, a much more focused strategy and approach. And it may mean we're going to put all our chips in on one program. We're going to invest in health sciences and really be known for that. Uh, It may be that we're going to really focus on the authenticity of our student experience and how do we really make sure we're selling that brand that people are perceiving online, much like I'm sure Michael's son checked out a lot of campuses via their websites first, and then you go and visit and is it authentic? Is it what you thought it was going to be? kind of like those vacation brochures where you think you're getting oceanfront and you get there and realize you got to kind of bend your neck and look to the corner to see the ocean, right? So so how do we make sure that we're, we're selling that authentic experience to, sh- to show the value? This was an experience that impacted all the markets significantly in different ways. It, I'm curious, though, just out of the four markets that we represent, you know, higher ed, IID, retail, workplace, was one hit worse or is it a shared burden? One of my right hands, Declan McCormick, he's our client leader. He basically put a blog together because we had conversations about this. It's called One Step Back, Two Steps Forward. 
Retail has this cycle of every seven to 10 years, there's a major hit. Usually it has a lot to do with interest rates and the Fed, and it goes in these waves. And so we were actually overdue for one of one of these adjustments. The last big one was the Great Recession. So here is 10 years later, we have this really big hit. But what Drew also mentioned is retail is actually really quick to innovate because it's do or die. It either works and you move forward or it doesn't work and you declare bankruptcy. So innovation is at the heart of retail. It's always made the adjustment. And when it makes the adjustment, it takes two steps forward. It really figures it out where the customer is going. So again, it was get their anxieties for the shoppers and their employees satisfied. You have to get the baseline. And now it's all about strategy for 2021. They have to look what's going to happen at Christmas to see where they're going to be. But they already have three or four levels of plans in place of where the capital expenditure is going to be. And all four levels have initiatives to really drive forward what they're already learning so that they can innovate. And this whole, like I said, this omni-choice strategy is where a lot of them are landing. When we talk about it, it resonates with them. So there's going to be a huge innovation of connecting the brand across all these channels. They were very siloed organizations, and now they can't be. There's going to be probably one person in charge. I see a restructuring happening as part of that innovation because you have to get rid of the status quo at this point for the amount of change that needs to happen in retail. It's actually going to be an exciting time in 2021 for retail. And I think once somebody figures it out, I mean, they all jump on board. They're really a tight community when it comes to innovation. And Andrew, you did steer the conversation in that direction because that's where we want to go next. So 2021... Let's talk about what are the market perspectives, what's around the corner. Paul, what are the market perspectives for higher education for 2021? The first thing, Brian, I would say is assuming a vaccine hits and really becomes more mainstream mid-year to late year, that means that we still have at least winter semester of remote learning, at least in a hybrid model in some instances, or the risk of it if uh, campuses bring students back but then have an outbreak. It will probably be many of the same issues our clients are dealing with that they did in 2020. However, they've already been through a semester and are much more equipped to operate this way. I do think as you start to see things open up, you will see a pent-up demand that Drew mentioned more on kind of this rush to let's let's have more events, let's get back together, a celebration on campus of being able to go back to at least some sort of normal. But I do think you will see some institutions look back to what did we learn when we had to go remote and we had to make make it through this pandemic? What are those efficiencies we found? Did we learn that maybe there are some courses that we should offer online because now we can invest that time and money into another program and offering more things in person that are better in person, like labs and, and engineering classes like Michael talked about? Uh, or there are operational efficiencies we learned that You know, until we had to do without that, we didn't know we could do without it. But now that we have, we can now reinvest those funds to make campus stronger, our business strategy stronger somewhere else. Thank you, Paul. That's fascinating. Michael, what about IID? What's the perspective for 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen where, you know, already there are some sectors of the industrial market that have done well or picking up. You see, you know, home improvement type materials up recreational vehicles or uh, things like RVs and motorcycles. People were spending a lot of time with families now and outdoors. And those type of you know, manufacturers or producers are doing well. I already mentioned earlier on around the uh, personal health care type products. They're doing well. But I, I also see for 2021, I've talked a lot about supply chain 
resiliency. We talked about e-commerce and how that's affected retail. We do see a lot more distribution type centers. People are expecting now a one-day delivery. So we'll see more of these in kind of the urban environments. So there'll be lots of opportunity there for DCs. I mentioned about ensuring the business continuity and not sole sourcing. So we certainly expect more and more tier two, tier three suppliers to invest in new facilities. The automation will be a piece as well. So I think some owners will have remodels or expansions that include that automation piece that will create opportunities for the industrial sector. But I think it's bright, quite honestly. I think there's lots of opportunities there. It'll come back for sure. One of the things that you said earlier, Michael, about IID is that a lot of the supply chains are coming back to the United States. I think when you talk about a bright future, that's something that folks could see as a positive. You know, we're in a place where there is a higher unemployment rate. A lot of people may be looking at new careers. Maybe that affords new opportunities in the wake of that. Yeah, I mean, creating more jobs. One of the things I didn't touch on is what I'm seeing a lot of manufacturers do because of the staffing constraints that they've had, people not able to to get to the work, you know, whether they're taking care of a loved one or they got children that can't go in school. So now they're they're capacity constrained on the human workforce. Not only are they going to look at more automation or robotics, but the training of the employees that they've got. I mean, a lot of the a lot of facilities we work in, these are advanced manufacturing facilities. So you've got degreed people that are operators or technicians on these lines. I think we're going to see owners expect the employees to be able to be trained to do multiple tasks at the manufacturing plant. They're going to be looking for more multidimensional type associates and people that are more that utility player. So I think there's going to be a need for training as well. So I'm going to go to Drew next on Workplace. So Drew, what's the market perspective for Workplace for 2021? At a macro scale, as Paul mentioned, right, in higher ed, everything is dependent upon a vaccine. Without the vaccine, most of our clients are not even considering what a safe return looks like. However, I think at this point in time, our clients kind of fall into one of three buckets. So the first bucket is the do-nothing bucket. When this is all over, we'll just return to the workplace as it was before and everything will work itself out, people just get back to work. The second school of thought is, might we use this opportunity to make some slight modifications to the workplace? And should we be opportunistic about it? Looking at, say, leases that are expiring in a couple of years or you know, the potential to shed portions of the real estate portfolio. And then the third bucket is, we do have some clients that are you know, at a senior leadership level making some pretty dramatic proclamations, like when you come back, this place will look different. And so that bucket is the reimagined bucket. And that phrase is being used by lots of organizations right now. Now, what's interesting is the first bucket, the do nothing approach. In the short term, sure, you know, you're not going to incur any cost and, you know, people will return potentially to some rotten fruit on their desk they left, you know, 18 months ago. But the reality is- A couple dead plants. Yeah. (laughs) People have learned to work differently through this period of time. You know, most organizations were, were grappling with, do we or do we not adopt some sort of modified workplace program? And I think that at the management level, some of the protocols are going to shift regardless of what the organization decides to do. So in the do nothing approach, I think what's going to reveal itself with time is those organizations are overspaced or the spaces they have don't work to support the ways that people have adapted throughout this period of time. So, you know, do nothing eventually results in do something. Now, when that happens, who knows, you know, maybe it takes six months, a year or whatever for the problem to gradually reveal itself, but I think it will either at the organization or quite frankly, because 
employees are are somewhat fluid organization to organization. Mm -hmm. So some employees might prefer to leave organization A and go to organization B where there's more flexibility. The middle bucket, right? They do something at a modest scale, I think is kind of the rational approach right now. And we have a lot of clients kind of exploring that rational approach. And I think it will unfold over the next two or three years, say, as leases expire, as clients essentially right-size the portfolio. And that right-sizing, I think, is going to look like really exploring what needs to happen within the corporate footprint versus beyond the corporate footprint. And so we're going to see the rise of this ecosystem approach to workplace, whereby the workplace experience is not just, you know, when I show up at 8.30 in the morning with my tie on, and when I leave at 5.30 in the evening with my tie loose, I've gone to work. That reality was already being challenged before, but I think it will be even more challenged after the pandemic. And then the big opportunity that we see, right, are these reimagined scenarios where organizations are making some pretty dramatic proclamations about what the role the workplace plays to begin with. Those organizations are starting to bridge the gap between workplace strategy, corporate real estate, human resources, IT. They're effectively considering the employee value proposition. So I often think of the relationship between an employer and employee is not dissimilar from Andrew's world, the relationship between consumer and brand. People are on an everyday basis choosing to go to work. The barriers to leaving might be a little bit higher, but they're they're electing to go there. So those employers that are beginning to think pretty radically, I think will probably reset the bar for for what it means to work in corporate America for, for decades to come. Thank so Drew, you. I have a question about that. So all things equal, do you see employers potentially using the fact that we have a physical presence of an office that you can come to work in, and here's the benefits, as a way to attract and retain compared to people who say, I'm going to hire you for this role, but you'll work from home full time? I do, but classically, I think it depends. There's a portion of the workforce that wants to work from home. I'm a strong, independent contributor. I prefer my autonomy versus folks that want to feel connected and belong to an organization. And, you know, not to make generalizations, but let's broadly classify people into those two buckets. You know, bucket A, you, you might take a job, right, where you can work from the beach, so to speak, and maybe that's okay. But bucket B is the, the bucket of folks who want to feel, again, connected to that organization. And having a physical space is certainly, for bucket B, I think, a differentiator in the marketplace for labor. Because a job is a job is a job to some degree. It's it's who you work with that becomes the story of your career, right? So it's important to make those personal connections with folks. And that's just really challenging in the physical environment. Again, my perspective is that the physical workplace is not going away. It will be right-sized, and I think it's going to look pretty dramatically different. We're going to see a shift towards more spaces for interaction. Might the workplace be the place where you come in and connect to the heart of the organization. And so for some people, that'll be an everyday event. For others, it might be you know, once a month, but the workplace is still the best representation of an organization. Yeah, it's mm. interesting too, because one of the success drivers sometimes is to create an environment where people are delighted or surprised. And if you do go in every day, suddenly that delight and surprise, unless it's changed or managed in some mm. way, loses its efficacy. If you lived close to, say, the Pantheon in Rome and you walked past it every day, would it lose its luster for you? Oh, there's just, there's that old building again. But if you're seeing it for the first time, suddenly it's exciting. So maybe there's a benefit to being away. But it also changes perspectives on what are some of the things that we could design for. I know in workplace, you know, you talk about a lot of it is for knowledge work. 
And there are a lot of people who have a hype capacity for knowledge work, but they have sensory processing issues. So is this our opportunity to reimagine a place that allows for neurodiversity? People are either hyper or hyposensitive, you know, to sensory input. And they, you know, maybe we're not using them to their full potential because we can't create an environment where they feel safe and structured. So there's, it's just given us time to pause to think about a lot more inclusivity in the way design is done for people, since we do design for people. I agree with you. A broader ecosystem of spaces will enable more people to enter the workforce. Sure. So, Andrew, now that you've heard everybody talk about their perspectives for 2021, did it remind you of anything that you wanted to say before? I think our profession of planning and designing spaces and knowing that there's been so much change and shift in Uh, We call it user behavior, so that includes the students, the workers, everybody in the offices, and the students, the professors. The fact that we keep doing a lot of research, we keep helping not only our clients, but help ourselves by by surveying these users. And we're going to continue to do these shopper surveys to understand the shifts and and how it's going to affect the decision-making that our clients are doing. And again, we're going to do it from a space perspective a lot of times, too. Part of what we were doing in our research is doing our roundtable. So we'll meet with retailers, and Brian, you help us do this, facilitate questions that kind of provoke a conversation where they can share best practices and, and test ideas. And out of one of those roundtables, there's a quote. Now, I'm gonna, this quote is very retail-centric, but if you substitute two key words, it represents what it means for all our markets. And I think this is where the success of space is going to come in for the future. And the quote is, we cannot expect shoppers to remain loyal if they do not feel the in-store experience is tailored to their needs. And Drew and Paul and Michael, you basically all just summed up exactly that sense, but as it relates to your market. So I think experience and understanding the needs of these shoppers and students and workers are going to be so important for our clients to invest in space. And I think it's going to be even more important that bang for the buck wise, because the return is not going to be at the levels for many years now that it was before the pandemic. So that investment has to be really efficient and really smart, the bang for the buck of where that experience is going to happen. And I think that's going to help our clients differentiate. And I think our commitment to it's going to help us differentiate as an organization of thinking this way to to help them succeed. Way to come in with the big profound quote at the end, Andrew. I, I like that. That was a little bit of serendipity. So I know you're all very busy and we're at the end of our time. So I wanted to thank you all, Paul, Michael, Drew, and Andrew, for sharing your experience for 2020 and your perspectives for 2021. I know there was a lot of excitement going into 2020 and that changed very quickly, very early on, but we'll see what the future brings. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, everyone. No problem. Thank you all. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, for this episode, Looking Back and Looking Beyond, with BHDP market leaders Andrew McQuilkin, Paul Orban, Drew Susco, and Michael Verdeer. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.